we did a, ver- a video series, a DVD-based series called The Art of Marriage uh, from Family Life, and uh, it was just excellent. I had high expectations going into it. I'd been to a Family Life event before, um, so I had high expectations, but it met my expectations and actually exceeded them. And so I just wanted to give you guys a quick update as to what went, what went on that weekend. So I've asked a couple couples uh, to come just share a little bit. So you know who you are. Come on up at this point, and uh, I'll hand you a mic. Yeah, go ahead, man. Even Yeah, that's fine. If you want to, without your wife. Come on. And my wife's going to bring our daughter, so she's going to get interviewed too, I think. <laughs> See what she thought of the weekend. She attended it as well. Oh, no, she's not. So, <laughs> Thanks. Come on up, guys. Have a seat. That's fine. It's no big deal. Thanks. I will hand the mic to you because you're closest, so you're the lucky one. (laughs) Uh, So just for starters, tell us a little bit uh, about the weekend. What was the format of the weekend? And or the the topics. (laughs) Pass it off. Some of the topics that we talked about. (laughs) Okay. I'll take the easy question. Um, It was a DVD-based curriculum, and really there was a lot of uh, you see these couples' testimonies, and you see these skits of these people going through a specific uh, situation, and then they bring in the teaching from all these great speakers like Bodhi Bakum, which is one that I've always admired, though I haven't heard very much, and some others um, whose names I recognized from books, authors, and things like that. And um, some of the topics were communication and conflict, um, Loving your spouse, how to do that well, kind of the roles between men and women, the distinctions, um, how to make those work together. Mm-hmm. There was a section on sex, and there was a section that we missed that one. And was <laughs> and the last one I, I think was in like just how to make leaving it all work, a legacy. right? Yeah, yeah, leaving a legacy, so. I think. So uh, I guess uh, this is an opening question. Then, what maybe stood out to you the most? What you know, particular session or lesson, just kind of an open-ended question. What did you enjoy about it? What stood out to you the most? And that's just for anybody. Whoever will grab the mic. <laughs> uh, very hard to pinpoint because there was so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the role, you know, there's things that you look at your spouse like, oh, I wish you could do that a little better. I'm sure Tom, you know, at me. And it's made me look at um, how do I help him do that better or do I allow him to do that better? I mean, what role do I pay, play in potentially holding him back? Um, so that was, that was wonderful. We're, you know, not there to fix each other. We weren't there because, you know, we thought we had problems. I mean, we all, every place, you know, there's no perfect and there's no perfect people, but, um, it sure made things better and made us, uh, look at some things to potentially make things better every day for now and until forever. Yeah, and I'll just piggyback on that. Uh, the uh, purpose of our marriage retreat is whether your marriage is really struggling, it's for you. Whether you have a really good marriage, it's for you. Whether you have an exceedingly yeah. good marriage, you can still grow. So, absolutely. Anybody else want to answer that one? Anything that stood out or particularly enjoyed? <laughs> Here, brother-in-law. <laughs> The only thing that stood out for me, I've heard it before, but it was good to hear it again about how selfish we are as human beings. Usually we put ourselves first and not our spouse. Yeah. Jesus Christ is always first, but after that it would be our spouse. And if we truly put our spouse in front of ourselves, it 
it does work. Yeah, and I'll piggyback on that personally. I really enjoyed the second session, which was about, um, con well, not conflict, but the idea of what causes tension in marriage. And they really encouraged us not to look at the person sitting next to us or sleeping next to us, but to look first at us and to consider um, what it is, you know, what role that we have to play. So, Shelley, you want to answer that one? Yes. You're my wife. I can put you on the spot. <laughs> I wish you had told me this last night so I could, like, flip back through the book. Impromptu. Um, yeah, that was definitely something that um, also stood out to me in terms of they really talked a lot about just from a biblical standpoint, marriage does work when Christ is in the mix and how Christ is changing us and can change us. Um, and not that we ever go to our spouse and say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, because chances are we will. But I'm sorry. And, will you pray for me that I can continue to become better at this, you know, and for us to continually be forgiving in our marriages because we're sinners and I sin, you sin, we offend each other. And sometimes the offenses Trey and I talked a lot about this the other night. Sometimes the offenses, we just need to let go because it's us being selfish. If we really look at the, the root of what it was we were angry about deep down, it's just, I'm being selfish. I wanted my way X, Y, Z, but sometimes it's a real offense and we have to learn to approach that person correctly in love and talk about it um, and resolve it in a healthy way. And so that was some of the things that stood out to me. Right. Uh, one more open-ended question before we wrap up. Anything that you guys just particularly want to share uh, encourage, by way of encouragement um, or just anything that stood out to you? If not, that's fine. We'll wrap up, but... <laughs> you haven't talked yet. Give so. it stuff. I'll talk. I'll talk. Uh, biggest thing I probably learned is is not to fight evil with evil. I get into that too much where my wife calls me a punisher. If she does something wrong to me, then I'm going to punish her for a while. So it's one thing I'm going to work on is trying not to fight her evil with my evil. Which creates <laughs> bad times. So. And no, he didn't cause the swelling in the leg. <laughs> I did fall. <laughs> That's not the kind of punishment. Um, I think um, after it helping me look at myself more and how how do I help him? And th- I am so proud of him right now that he just took that microphone. And for, I need to say that more. Obviously, I'm the talker of the two. That's no secret. Um, <laughs> So that was huge for him, huge. And so right now I need to say, I am so proud of you. Because I am. And I need to do, look at myself as how, how do I help him grab the microphone more. So that's what I need to do. And I spoke a few minutes ago and I made somebody cry and I didn't mean to. But the end was the legacy factor. And... Tom never thought he was going to have five kids. He's adopted. If anybody doesn't know that story, it's an incredible story. Not only adopted once, but twice. And he probably values legacy more than anything. And what we need to do, and, you know, our kids, even the older ones have Owen saying, ew, gross, you know, if they see us kiss and something like that. So they see that. They see our affection. But are they seeing the more unspoken things? And we really talked about that a lot. It's like, are they seeing enough of that so that their marriages are fabulous and their children, you know, it just goes on and on. And 
Peg said this to me. She goes, oh, I, I just missed that. And I said, but you got the legacy part. And let's just all make sure that we we have the legacy. And that's what I, I I'm so glad that was the ending thing because mm-hmm. that was, I'm sure that wasn't unintentional. That was right. a beautiful sure note to end on. Yeah. Let's make sure that we have that legacy to get. Well said. Thanks. Well, uh, just in case you're interested in uh, watching the videos, we will have them available. So they'll be out there at the media center if you want it uh, in the weeks to come. Highly encourage you to do that. In addition, we're chewing on some options about maybe some continuing conversations along these lines, maybe doing a special three-week uh, small group or maybe a Sunday school class here in the near future. Uh, we'll let you know when we decide uh, to do that. So, guys, wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's give them a round of applause. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Yeah. Well, welcome to Grace Bible Church. I invite you guys to stand and find somebody you don't know. Thanks. Good morning, Grace Bible Church. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17, 16 through 18 says this. From now on, therefore, uh, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal, his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And it concludes by saying, for, the, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And isn't that the message of the song, Jason's Gray, Jason Gray's song, I Am New, uh, that we just heard? Lovely song. I really really enjoy it. So this morning we are uh, going to continue in our idolatry series and uh, our series called The Idol Factory. And so if you have your Bibles, let's do this. Grab them uh, and turn with me. Uh, where are we going to start? Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're actually going to be kind of doing popcorn verses this morning. So be ready to flip back and forth through your New, through your new Testament. We're going to start in the book of Ephesians. And uh, part 11, the idol of identity. As you can tell, we've been talking about idolatry. We've been talking about all sorts of potential idols in our hearts and lives. We've talked about the idol of children, the idol of money last week, the idol of work, pleasure, romance, family, you name it. All sorts of idols because our heart is fallen and wicked. And as John Calvin says, it is indeed an idol factory, always producing different idols. This morning, I want to talk about an idol that I call the idol of identity. The idol of identity. Uh, While you're flipping, uh, turn, uh, let's do this. Um, Bow your heads with me and let's pray. And then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for a good morning. It's so good to be here and to hear about what you're doing in the midst of our lives uh, here at Grace Bible Church and beyond. Father, grateful uh, for the marriage retreat that we had this past weekend and uh, for the good, solid, biblical, creative, uh, meaningful, applicable um, DVD series that we enjoyed. And uh, I pray, Father, for our marriages, uh, that they would be good, strong, holy, uh, full of forgiveness and mercy, and full of mirroring the image of Christ as Jesus Christ is our bridegroom who sacrificed lovingly as our head 
bread, sacrificed himself for us in Jesus Christ. We, as uh, the collective church, we are the bride of Christ and that we submit to him and follow him uh, in love. And so we're so grateful for this uh, institution of marriage that is meant to mimic what you were doing in our world. Father, we ask this morning that you would clear our hearts and minds, give us attentiveness, spirit come, and help us to be open uh, to your word, in particular this morning as we explore who it is that we once were without Jesus Christ and who it is that we are now if we have indeed placed our faith in Jesus Christ and be born again. I pray that we would have our eyes opened to the riches of your grace, uh, to the new marvelous identity uh, that you make us in your son, Jesus Christ, new birth, new creatures. All things are passing away and being made new, and you're doing that in our midst and in our lives. And so help us, Spirit. Jesus, be honored and be glorified in all that we do, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin uh, this morning by asking you a simple question. Um, you don't have to answer it out loud, at least not initially, and so this is kind of a uh, answer it in your mind's eye. And, and, and really, I just want your gut, I, gu- I want your gut response as we begin to probe uh, this potential idol of, of identity apart from Christ. And so this, the simple question is this, who am I? Not me, who are you? I want you to ask this question, who am I? Another way to ask it would be, how would you fill in this blank? If you're maybe, say, meeting somebody for the first time, hello, I am blank. And I don't mean your name. <laughs> That's simple enough, right? Hello, I am a blank. So chew on that just a second. How would you answer that question? Because fundamentally, it's a question of identity. Fundamentally, it's a question of who it is that we perceive ourselves to be. What is our core identity? What is our value? What do we care about most? How do we see ourselves? What gives us significance? I'll first tell you how I would answer that, just honestly and kind of off off the whim. I would say, hello, my name is Trey. Of course, we start with our name. And then I would say, I am... Uh, a husband to Shelly. And so I would begin with my primary relationship. I'm a husband. I am married to Shelly. And then I would go on to say, and I'm a father. I've got two kids. I'm the daddy to a little boy and a little girl. And then moving on, if somebody prodded more, I would say, well, I'm a pastor. I would go to my vocation. And I would say, this is what I do. I'm a pastor. And then if they press me a little bit harder, then I would say, uh, I'm a Texan. <laughs> and then I would say I'm an Aggie, which specifies the good Texans and the bad Texans. Okay. Um, so just so you know, and so if, if that's how I would answer that question, how would you answer that question? What, what came to your mind? If you're willing to share, just shout it out. If, you, if you're not, that's fine. What came to your mind? How would you answer it? Hello, I'm a... Oh, you're a bunch of chickens. <laughs> that's fine. I think you all have things in your mind. And the point that I want to make this morning is that not that what we think of, not being a dad or, a, or an Aggie, is wrong, according to perspective on the last one. Uh, but it's not like it's wrong. But the, the reason I ask this is because oftentimes how we answer that question is how we define ourselves. It's often the thing that gives us most significance and value and meaning in life. It's often the things that we tend to live for and therefore have the potential to, uh, to, to, to be idols in our life. And so basically this morning, we've got a very simple sermon, two-part sermon. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but not all sermons have to be three parts, even though there is Father, Son, Spirit. So most uh, sermons should have text, you know, interpretation and application, but that's neither here nor there. There are two parts this morning. Uh, number one, we're going to define the idol of identity. So if you're taking notes, jot this down. Defining the idol of identity. And then secondly, we're going to wrap up and we are going to learn, hopefully, 
at least how to take some initial steps, how to defeat the idol of identity. So we're going to define it, and then hopefully we're going to learn how to defeat it. And so, number one, defining the idol of identity. Uh, the question here is, what do I mean when I'm talking about the idol of identity? What is an idol of identity? Um, I want to share with you a couple quotes that I think are extremely helpful. Number one, uh, Tim Keller. Uh, I really uh, enjoy Tim Keller. Don't agree with him on everything, but I think he is very insightful on many, many things. And Tim Keller, in one of his books, The Reason for God, which, by the way, I highly recommend if you are into kind of a C.S. Lewis um, uh, defending the Christian faith for the 21st century kind of a thing. Excellent. If you have unbelieving friends, put it in their hands. Tim Keller in this book, The Reason for God, defines this idol. He defines the idol as identity as such. Hopefully it's on the screen. He says this. It's the despairing refusal, the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. He says it's, it's the, the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in a couple of things, in your relationship and service to God. He goes on to say, it's to get an identity apart from him, that is God. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central. And here's the, here's the key words. More central to your significance, to your purpose and happiness than your relationship to God. And so, to put it in a nutshell, this is what Tim Keller is saying. The idol of identity is this. It's when we define ourselves and when we find our ultimate value, our ultimate significance in anything other than being a Christian and being on mission for Christ. Mark Driscoll says it this way. He says, whenever we base our identity and value on, whatever we base our identity and value on becomes deified, an idol in a sense. This object of worship then determines what we hold in glory and what we live for. How most people fill on the blank, I am a blank, which is our little exercise this morning, often reveals what they have deified or lifted to the, uh, to the heights of godhood, if you will, and are building their life on. And so let me flesh this out a little bit for you, the idol of identity, what this may look like. Now, many of you probably answered this in various ways when I said, I asked you to say, I am a blank. And there are all sorts of things that we place our value in, that we identify ourselves in. And so, number one, I think most oftentimes we are we identify ourselves by our vocation. And so you may say, I am an electrician. The first thing that comes to your mind, I am a teacher, I am a dentist, I am a farmer, I am a pastor. Whatever it is vocationally that you may do, that's oftentimes the thing that comes up first. And, and, and if I were being honest, that may be the very first thing. That may be my idol of identity, is that I am a pastor, as opposed to being a Christian. I'm a Christian on service for Jesus Christ. And so this is what it could look like. Mark Driscoll says we base our identity and our value on this. And so if you are a teacher, what this may look like is when somebody asks this, you base your identity and your value on it. That is, you feel significant. You feel meaningful. You feel like you have purpose in your life because you are a teacher. He says, then this could become deified and this object of worship then determines what we hold in glory or live for. Because we associate our value and our meaning with being a teacher, then if we're a good teacher, then we're valuable. And if we're a poor teacher, if we get fired, if we have bad reviews, if we have bad marks, if our kids don't like us, well then we are crushed because we hold it in a place of glory in our life and we begin to live for that as opposed to living for God and Jesus Christ. Uh, so it could be a vocation. 
Secondly, it could be uh, most oftentimes a family relationship. And so for most of us, that's usually maybe where we begin. Hello, I'm Trey Sheffer. I am married to Shelley. And so that can become my identity, my primary source of value and significance. And so if it's a, if it's a, if, if, if it's a family relationship, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a granddaughter. You see where I'm going with this. And so if it's, if it's a mother, hello, I'm, I'm a mother. That's where we find our value. What it looks like then is we place our, our identity in that and our value on it so that we feel valued, significant, by being a mother, it becomes elevated to the place of deity, and then it, we hold it in glory and we live for that. And so your life is not, hello, I'm a Christian, I'm on mission for Jesus Christ, and part of that is I am a mother raising children. It's I am a mom, and we place all of our stock, all of our value on that. And we're going to talk about what happens when that identity gets elevated to an idol and then it's taken away. We'll get there. So it could be our vocation. It could be our standing as a family member. It could be uh, maybe our education. Hello, I find my deepest value and I'm a college grad. I graduated from Illinois University. I'm an Illini. Hello, my name is Trey Schaffer. I graduated from Texas A&M and I'm an Aggie. Hello, I am a master of such and such. Hello, I have my doctorate in this or that. It could be our education. It could be our economic status. I'm middle class, I'm upper middle class, I'm rich. Let's just say we consider ourselves rich and that's what we find our identity in. And so then it becomes an object of worship. We identify our value on that. And so we don't feel meaningful, we don't feel valuable, we don't feel like ourselves if the stock market takes a crash and we go from being rich to being only mildly rich. We feel like we have lost a bit of ourselves because that is what our identity is in. We hold it in glory. We begin to live for being rich. And so everything that we do in life is now filtered through maintaining our status of living. We have to have that kind of car. We have to live in that kind of house. We have to eat at these kind of restaurants. We have to live in these kind of clothing because no longer am I a Christian who's on service for Christ, but I'm a rich person and I live for it. I hold it in glory. So it could be our economic status. <clears throat> it could be a location. Uh, some of us, as I did in mine, we uh, identify ourselves with a location. And so, hello, I'm Trey Schaffer. I'm a Texan. Hello, I'm so-and-so, and I live in Illinois. Hello, let me bring it a little closer to home. I am a Cisna Parker. Is that what we're called here? A Cisna Parker? Let's just say that. Hello, I'm a Cisna Parker. And we base our identity on our location. So what happens is it then becomes our identity and our value. And so we it's wrapped up in the fact that I'm from here and I'm not from there. I'm from here and I'm not from there. It becomes an object of worship that de- determines what we hold in glory and what we live for. And so then our mission becomes not being uh, a child of God on mission for Christ, but it becomes making Cisna Park or Milford or pick and choose wherever it is you live, the greatest and the best that it can be. And we wrap ourselves in that. Maybe it's a, it's a political party. This happens very oftentimes in our country, especially in a country that's so radically divided uh, politically. And so many people, that's where they find their identity and value. Hello, I'm a Democrat. Hello, I'm a Republican. Hello, I'm a Tea Party. Or hello, I'm a, what are the other ones? Green Party, right? I don't know. They're really only two big ones. But um, and, and they get so wrapped up in that, they hold it in the place of glory and they live for it. So that what becomes most important, heaven on earth is not when Jesus Christ returns. It's when the Republicans take the White House 
House, right? Or it's, it's when the Democrats take the White House or whatever. I'm not speaking politically here, but you get the point. Heaven on earth becomes when a political party or this candidate gets involved and not when Jesus Christ comes back to restore everything in his perfect kingdom. It could be, uh, I'll just go through this a little quicker, it could be a hobby. Hello, I'm a fisherman. Hello, I'm a hunter. Hello, I'm a gardener. It could be a, it could be a social cause. Hello, I'm an environmentalist. Hello, I'm an anti-abortionist. You see where I'm going with this. It could be all sorts of anything. And so here's the question then in defining the idol of, 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 of identity. Oftentimes, I think, personally, this is, a, this is a subtle idol. That is, we may not realize that we're struggling in idolizing particular things that we, uh, that we make our identity unless it's taken away. And so here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. Mark Driscoll said that last week, that we oftentimes don't realize our idols until, until they're taken away, and then we realize that it's not just a person, it's not just a thing, that is what we were living for. That is what we set our hopes on. That is what we found value in, and it's now gone, and we're devastated. We're not just hurt. We're not just upset. We are devastated, and we don't feel like a life is worth living anymore. So this is what it looks like. Number one, uh, if we place our identity in motherhood, uh, that's the thing about this idol, the idol of identity. It comes and goes. It can come and go. If you place your identity in being a mom, what happens then when your kids leave home? What happens then when they go across the world? Uh, I have a, a lady back in our home church uh, in Dallas, and she uh, she has a son who married a Chinese girl and lives in China. And I complain about living, you know, at, that far away from my family. They live halfway across the world. And what I saw in this woman was that her identity was not in her children. And so when her son says, I'll see you maybe once or twice a year, no, once or twice every two years, that is, she's okay because her identity is not wrapped up in being a mom. Uh, if we place our identity in a career, maybe a job, uh, we're a farmer, we're uh, whatever it is that you may do. Let's say you particularly like that career. What happens when cuts are made? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you move uh, to a new region and you can't do the career or the job that you want? What happens, and I've seen this happen, what happens when you get to retirement age? Men in particular, this is for us. You've been working, you've been investing in your career, whatever it is, and you finally get to the point where you're like, yes, I can retire. I'm whatever age that is, and you retire and you feel like you've lost yourself because really your identity was wrapped up in what you did and you're lost. And I've literally, I've seen men go into depression and feel worthless and like life is not worth living because their identity is wrapped up in their business, in their career, in climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it is, and their identity is not in. I'm a child of God on mission for Jesus Christ and that should be enough to stir and satisfy my heart. I think you get the point. Oftentimes, the defining the idol of identity in our life doesn't happen until things are taken away. Listen to what uh, any of you are familiar tennis fans. Let me just ask this. You can admit it. I like tennis. Admit it. Tennis? Oh, my goodness. Beth, I know you've been to the U.S. Open in New York. You are a tennis fan, and I'm jealous because I want to go. I want to go to New York and see the U.S. Open. Um, but back in the 70s, uh, late 70s and early 80s, there was a tennis legend on the women's side of the, of the court by the name of Chris Everett. Anybody heard of Chris Everett before? Okay, thank you, Chris Everett. Um, you know, after she retired from being a professional tennis player, and she was one of the best, I mean, one of the best, top five women's tennis players ever, Listen to what she said in one of her interviews about how she handled the shift in identity. 
Listen to her words. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. Says Chris Everett as she recalled the final years of her career. Quote, I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined, listen to that word, had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. Sense of worth, value. I needed the wins, the applause, and here's the kicker, in order to have an identity. And that is what can happen in our lives when what we may be idolizing through this, this idea of placing our identity in something, when it's taken away, we feel like she does. So hopefully I've clearly defined the idol of identity. Secondly, let's learn a little bit about maybe how we can go about defeating this idol. How can we defeat the idol of a false identity? How can we stop idolizing it? Well, I would suggest to you that uh, the beginning place is, is this. We define ourselves not according to what we do, not according to all of these things that we've been talking about, but we begin by defining ourselves as God defines us. If we are Christians, if you have come to a place where you've recognized that the Creator God created you to know Him and to worship Him and to serve Him, but because of the sin of humankind that we rebel, we reject Him, we are unworthy to stand before Him. If you've come to this realization and you've said, I am destined to uh, be under God's wrath forever and ever and I need a substitute, and if you've come to recognize that that substitute is Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in Him and you've been united with Christ, you've been forgiven, you've been reborn, the Holy Spirit's come to live inside of you. If you're a Christian, that's what I mean by Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, then the beginning place to overcome the idol of identity is by realizing and defining ourselves according to how God sees us. Because it doesn't matter how we define ourselves. We, we make our own identities. We try to selfishly and pridefully identify and build up our lives instead of saying, God, who am I? We ask ourselves that. But we need to ask God that and say, God, who am I as a Christian? And God in the scriptures, if you look for it, has all sorts of answers. In fact, there should be a sheet in the back that I encourage you to take. It's a sheet that says, who I am in Christ. And it's a list of all sorts of things that God declares to be true in reality and experience about a Christian. So I want to... I want to encourage you to get that. But we must begin by realizing that there has been a massive identity shift that takes place. When we become Christians, it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not like it's just, oh, you're in now, here's your ticket, and that's all that happens. A whole slew of spiritual realities happen to us when we become believers, and there is an identity shift that takes place. When you read in the Bible, you see these stark contrasts about people who are not believers and people who are believers. Let me just list a few. Light versus darkness. Death versus life. Natural birth versus new birth. Old man or the old person versus the new person. Hopefully, as we read the scriptures at the end of our music set, you saw... Let me just let me point some of these out to you. Notice the contrast. Paul says, as for you, you were, that is, your past identity. And he goes on to talk about all sorts of things. And he says, but God, in his great love for us, made us alive. There's this divine but that happens. You used to be this, and now you're that. Colossians 3, since then, you've been raised with Christ. And, and all of the argument is, don't just 
Obey me because I tell you to, although that's a good reason. He says, that's a very good reason. He says, listen, this is why you should live differently. Because you're not who you used to be. You're not who you used to be. Therefore, live in line with your new identity in Christ. Again, I want to share with you about why we need this radical shift in identity that the gospel brings about. Again, Mark Driscoll, hopefully should be on the screen. Mark Driscoll says this, because sin, because sin, listen to this, because sin is not merely doing bad things. That's how we often define sin, and that is a part of the definition of sin. He says, but, it, but an, even, an even deeper problem of building our identity on someone or something other than God alone. He says, that's the essence of sin, is when we try to define ourselves outside of who God defines us as. The solution then to idolatry is not to change our behavior. Listen to that, church. The gospel is not just do better, okay, by your own power. The gospel is believe in Christ, be changed, and God will enable you to be transformed. He says, the solution to idolatry is not to change our behavior, but to have a complete reorientation of our nature beautiful, to have a complete reorientation of our nature at the deepest level of our being, or what Jesus calls being born again, being born again. And so oftentimes, before we are Christians, we try to build this image and value on vocation, on career, on success, on money, on relationships, whatever it might be. We build an identity apart from Christ, but then we accept Christ and we begin then to see ourselves not as spouses primarily or businessmen primarily or moms or dads or sons or daughters or Democrats or Republicans or ugly or pretty or whatever. We don't define ourselves that way primarily, but we look at ourselves and we say, God, who am I? And he says, you're a Christian. (laughs) That's who you are. You're a Christian on mission for Christ. And so I just want to share with you, time to do some uh, some flipping in our New Testament. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. What I want to do is show you just a few of these contrasting elements. Who who were we? What was our, our identity? How How did God define us before Christ? Because that's all that really matters, right? How did God see us? How did God define who we were? By nature. Who were we before we became Christians? And then we're going to look at, well then, what's the difference when Christ comes into our life? Five things, and believe me, there are many, many, many more. I've just uh, boiled it down to the five that I thought were very significant. Number one, before Jesus, before Jesus, number one, the Bible says that we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead people. That is, we did not have a relationship with God. This is clear. This is hard for us to hear. Good news is only good news, oftentimes when it's compared to bad news. This is the bad news of the gospel. The good news has bad news. And the bad news is, is that we were born not in relationship with God. We were born out of relationship with God. Spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1. We read it earlier. I'll read it again. If we can flip to that. Ephesians 2.1, as for you, talking to Christians here, as for you, you were, that's a key, key word. It's who they used to be. The state of every person before Christ. As for you, you were, no, what's the next word, church? Dead. You were dead. <clears throat> dead in your transgressions and dead in your sins. That is, you did not have a relationship with God. Number two, we were spiritually dead to God. Uh, I mean, number one, we were spiritually dead. Number two, we were guilty before God. These are linked. We did not have a relationship with God. We were separated from God. And therefore, we were guilty before God. He says we were dead 
Because of what? Our transgressions and our sins. If God is holy and perfect and we are sinful and full of transgressions, those two don't work. It's like water and oil. These don't mix. You know what I mean? And so because of our spiritual deadness, then the Bible declares we are guilty. Romans 3.12. Romans 3.12. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And here's the point I want us to focus at. So that... Paul, in Romans 3, is wrapping up this huge three-chapter defense of why every single person ever born is separated from God. And this is how he concludes it, pretty much. He says, so that every mouth, every mouth, may be silenced, and the whole world is held accountable to God. That is, the biblical perspective is that we were born separated from God because of our sins and transgressions. We are guilty. And so God, as the judge, looks at us as his creation, and he bangs the gavel, and he says, you're guilty. You're guilty. This is bad news. There's good news coming. Number three. Number three. We were born as objects of God's wrath. Because we are guilty, we are guilty. What happens in a, in a, in a trial? The judge declares somebody guilty. Bang, you're guilty. What happens next? There's a sentencing, is there not? And the sentence is punishment, judgment. Well, the same is true of a holy God. Uh, Ephesians 2.3 says we were objects of his wrath and all of us also lived among them at one time, all of these sins, gratifying uh, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. <clears throat> Catch this phrase, like the rest, like the rest, we were by nature, by nature, by nature, deserving of wrath. We were born as objects of God's wrath. Number four, not only that, but we live our lives enslaved to sin. We live our lives enslaved to sin. That is, we have a master and his name is sin. It's a principle, it's a power. And we, like slaves, are enchained to this master called sin and we do what he wants us to do. Now, we may think we have some freedom. The the chain might be kind of lengthy and we think we really have freedom to do everything we want to in this world and and live the way we want. And we think, this is freedom. But no, that's not true. It's not freedom. You're enslaved to the power of sin. You can't help but sinning all there is is a bit of, is a bit of length there Romans 6:17 but thanks be to God he's talking to Christians but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin that's the point before Christ you used to be a slave to sin he says you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance he basically says before you believed the gospel you were enslaved to habitual sin you might modify it you might try to transform yourself and kind of uh, just keep the sin over here. But that's all we were doing. We weren't overcoming sin. We weren't obeying God. We were just modifying our sin habits. Finally, number five. I have defined it, uh, defined it this way. We were on mission for ourselves or we were loving ourselves. That's, the, that's really the essence of, of humanity and sin. Self-orientation. I mean, good heavens. Do we not wake up in the morning and think, I have bad breath. I need to use the restroom. I did not get a good sleep last night. I need to take a shower. Are not all of our thoughts continually bent inward because of our fallen nature? What a glorious day when we are redeemed fully and Christ comes back and we are not bent inward but we're bent Christward. I just can't even imagine. On self-mission, 2 Timothy 3.2. People, he said, Timothy is describing a time. Paul is describing a time to Timothy that will come in the future. Not some 2,000 years ago. So we're probably there right now. He says, people will be lovers. This sounds a lot lot like our culture. People will be lovers of themselves. 
Lovers of themselves. And then he goes on to talk about other things. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient. He goes on. There's this whole list. But notice the first one. The very first thing he lists is that we love ourselves. And I say we are on mission for ourselves. We look out for number one, do we not? This is the bad news. And here, listen to me closely. If you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ... It doesn't matter if you're successful, if you're rich, if you have tons of family. It doesn't matter how you identify yourself. What matters is what God says about you. What matters the most is your relationship to God and your service to him. And if you're outside of Christ, this is what the Bible declares to be true about you. And it's bad news. I realized this stuff um, progressively, but when I was 15, it came to a head and I realized that all of those things were true. Not just about my mom and my dad and my sister. They were true about me. That was true. And I needed something to to save me. I needed someone to save me. And that person is Christ. And so, by way of contrast, the good news is we believe in Jesus Christ who is perfect. He lived his perfect life for us in our place. He died a death taking the, the punishment and the penalty for sin in our place. He rose from the dead to be a new person so that we with him living in us, can be new people. That's the gospel. And when that happens, it's gloriously good news because that is how God saw us apart from Christ and our identity is shifted. When we become believers, our our identity, God says, this is who you once were and this is who you are now. So let's look at these really quickly. Number one, after Jesus, we are spiritually alive to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. Notice the contrast. We were dead to God. Now we are alive to God. We have new relationship with God. Number two, we are declared not guilty. We are declared not guilty. Before, not only were we spiritually dead, now we're spiritually alive. Before, we stood at the sentencing and we were judged guilty. And now we look and we stand before the judge and we're standing there and Jesus Christ wraps his proverbial arm around us and the judge says, not guilty. Because look who you're connected to, Jesus Christ. Not guilty, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing thing if you're a Christian because I do all sorts of things that are worthy of condemnation. Don't you? I do. We all do. But in Christ, God says, you are not guilty because of my son. Number three, we are reborn. We are reborn as objects of God's love. Before, we had a natural birth and we were born objects of God's wrath. When we become Christians, the Spirit comes inside of us. It's called renewal, regeneration, rebirth, according to Jesus in John 3. We are reborn. Ephesians 2, uh, 17. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, it's okay. If anyone's in Christ, I know it. <laughs> the old, uh, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new has come. We are new people, reborn as objects of God's love. Number four, we are set free. We are set free from habitual sin. Before, we had this slave master, and its name was sin. It was a power in our life. We thought we had freedom, but we were really enslaved. Everything we did was uh, was affected by the, the, the chains that were on our hands called sin. But the Bible says that when we become Christians, we become free from sin. Now, don't hear what I'm saying. That does not mean we won't ever sin as Christians. But what this means, according to Romans 6.18 and a lot of other places, is that sin's power over us is broken. We are not enslaved to it. We don't have to do it. 
We can, I believe, as Christians, but we don't have to. We don't have to. Romans 6.18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I encourage you, read Romans 6 in the transformation that takes place, becoming slaves of righteousness and Jesus Christ rather than slaves of sin and Satan. Number five, we become on mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Before, we had a self-mission. We were bent inward. Now, as Christians, we have this desire to be bent outward, to be bent Christward. We recognize that our purpose in life is not just to have fun and get whatever we can, but we have this new and elevated purpose that drives us, and that is to know God and to make Him known to other people. And so we then are outwardly bent. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this. If we can flip there. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so we have this new purpose and mission in life that we are ambassadors, like U.S. ambassadors to China or any other nation. We represent the kingdom, the nation's interest. Well, guess what? We're a part of the kingdom of Christ and of God and of Jesus Christ, and we are his ambassadors sent out as his representatives. So that, notice the contrast there. Let's flip there one more time if we can do that. Look at the contrast, before and after. We have a new identity in Christ. So I want to close by this. How do we, how do we defeat the idol of identity? Well, I would argue that we embrace our new identity in Christ. We, believe, we begin to think of ourselves as God thinks of us, and then we let that shape our values, what we consider to be important, what we live for, as Mark Driscoll says, what we deify, what we hold in glory, so that we don't just see ourselves as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a banker, as a whatever it is that you may do. That's not who we are, and the mission is not solely us, but we are Christian bankers. We are Christian farmers. We are on mission for Christ as students. That is who we are. And then we live out of this new identity. So I want to close with this, a story. I want to close with a story, and there's a book that uh, I would recommend to anyone. It's called Revolution Within. Uh, it's, called, it's, it's not a really well-known book. It's by a pastor, a former pastor down in Texas. And his name is Dwight Edwards. And in his book, Revolution Within, he tells this story about our new identity in Christ and how it should affect the way we live. And I'm going to close with this and we'll be done. There's a fable from the North American Indians concerning a young brave who happened, who happened upon a nest of golden eagle eggs. De- deciding to have some fun, he took one of the eggs and placed it in the nest of some prairie chickens. The egg hatched and the fledgling eagle grew up and the, uh, with the brood of prairie chickens. Believing himself to be another prairie chicken, he grew and, and behaved just like all of the other prairie chickens. He clucked and crackled, scratching around in the dirt for seeds and insects to survive. He tried to fly, but he never got more than a few feet off the ground. You see, prairie chickens aren't capable of rising any higher than that. Years passed, and the challenging, uh, the challenging eagle was walking along with some of his prairie chicken brothers. Of course, this is a fable. <laughs> they looked up in the sky and saw a beautiful golden eagle soaring over them. And the prairie chicken said, what kind of bird is that? His brother replied, that's an eagle, the golden eagle. He's king of the air, and there's no other bird that can compare to him. Then he added this final note, but don't you give it a second thought. You could never be like him. The fable concludes that the challenging uh, uh, eagle never did give it another thought. He died just as he had lived, believing himself to be nothing more than a prairie chicken.
He never attempted to do the things that golden eagles do because he knew it was ludicrous for a prairie chicken to try the things that were so out of his league. And so he comments on this and he says this, Our divinely bestowed lot in life is to live as golden eagles, not prairie chickens. We are meant to know the keen thrill of unrestrained, exuberant worship of our God. We were made to taste the deep joy of walking supernaturally and unmistakably reflecting the glory of God in this dark world. It is our privileged calling to breathe deeply the crisp and rarefied air of knowing God more and more intimately. It is normative, that is, should be. It is normative for all believers to abandon themselves to a higher adventure of warfare for the kingdom of God. This is what we were made for, and therefore we cannot be truly satisfied with anything less. Prairie chicken living can never fulfill the heart of a golden eagle, for its God-given design mitigates against it. As saints, because of their God-given design, we can never be fully satisfied while rummaging around in carnal living or mediocre spirituality. We were made to soar. But, and here's the point, but unless we are clearly aware of who we really are and the nature of our true identity, we will also too easily slide back into prairie chicken living. And so in closing, I don't want us to fall back into prairie chicken living. I think that's what Paul is saying in all of his epistles. Don't live the way you used to be because you're not who you used to be anymore. Let's find our deepest identity, our deepest value, our deepest purpose in life in our relationship to God and our service to God. And as we do that, I think we'll soar. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the truth of your word. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you that he has come not just to make an old person better, as C.S. Lewis says, but he has come to make a new kind of person. And so, Father, help us to be found in Christ. I pray for those here who do not know him, who are in the first category, that they would realize that who they are is who God declares them to be. And if they want to be all that they are made to be, they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. God, help us not to rummage around in prairie chicken living when you have declared us to be and empowered us to be eagles that soar in our relationship to you and in the mission of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.